Happy summer, one and all, and welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month, we extend happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. We count that as anything from a 20th all the way up to a 100th anniversary. This, as ever, is your devoted host, Eric Martin, creator of the Cineverse blog and moderator of the weekly Cineverse film discussion group. And if you have just found our show, welcome. If you are a regular listener, we are thrilled to have you back. Steven Spielberg dazzled us decades ago with thrilling blockbusters like Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, as well as modern sci-fi adventure masterworks such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial. After those successes, he began dabbling in more serious stories of the realistic kind, including The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun. His exploration of adult dramas and historical narratives reached a peak in the 1990s, particularly with two films that forced critics, scholars, and historians to reappraise Spielberg as more than just a maker of popular popcorn pictures. In 1993, he released Schindler's List, a sobering work set during the Holocaust that went on to win the Best Picture Academy Award. And five years later, the World War II epic Saving Private Ryan hit theaters and further demonstrated the director's merits in the eyes of doubters and naysayers. This month, I'm thrilled to be joined by two brilliant guests. Returning to the podcast is Annette Insdorf, professor in the graduate film program at Columbia School of the Arts and an expert on Holocaust cinema. She and I will discuss Schindler's List. Following that conversation, I'll pair up with our go-to Spielberg expert, James Kendrick, professor of film at Baylor University, to chat all things Saving Private Ryan. Together, we will explore why these movies still resonate all these years later, ways they were inspiring and innovative, what they reveal about Spielberg, and much, much more. Yep, we've got a double-feature summertime discussion all set to go, and we're excited to kick off our sixth year of Cineversary with this episode. All right, ahead of my sit-down with Annette, let's say we delve into the backstory of Schindler's List and better understand how it came to be made. And for that task, we turn to Wikipedia. Schindler's List is a 1993 American epic historical drama film directed and produced by Steven Spielberg and written by Steven Zalian. It is based on the 1992 novel Schindler's Ark by Australian novelist Thomas Keneally. The film follows Oskar Schindler, a German industrialist who saved around 1,200 mostly Polish Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in his factories during World War II. It stars Liam Neeson as Schindler, Rafe Fiennes as SS officer Amon Gert, and Ben Kingsley as Schindler's Jewish accountant Yitzhak Stern. Ideas for a film about Schindler and the Jews he helped save were proposed as early as 1963. Spielberg became interested when executive Sidney Scheinberg sent him a book review of Schindler's Ark. Astounded by the story, Spielberg remarked, I was drawn to it because of the paradoxical nature of the character. What would drive a man like this to suddenly take everything he had earned and put it all in the service of saving these lives? Universal Pictures bought the rights to the novel, but Spielberg, unsure if he was ready to make a film about the Holocaust, tried to pass the project to several directors. Now, that included Roman Polanski, Martin Scorsese, and Sidney Pollack. 
but eventually he decided to direct it himself, especially when he noticed that Holocaust deniers were being given serious consideration by the media at the time. With the rise of neo-Nazism and the fall of the Berlin Wall, Spielberg worried that people were too accepting of intolerance as they were in the 1930s. Principal photography took place in Krakow, Poland over 72 days in 1993. Spielberg decided to use black and white to match the feel of documentary footage of the era. Cinematographer Janusz Kaminski compared the effect to German Expressionism and Italian Neorealism. Kaminski said that he wanted to give the impression of timelessness to the film so the audience would, quote, not have a sense of when it was made, unquote. Spielberg approached the film as a documentary, in fact. He commented that he felt more like a reporter than a filmmaker. He would set up scenes and then watch events unfold, almost as though he were witnessing them rather than creating a movie. Influenced by the 1985 outstanding documentary film Shoah, Spielberg decided not to plan the film with storyboards and to shoot it instead like a documentary. 40% of the film was shot with handheld cameras and the modest budget meant the film was shot relatively quickly. Spielberg felt that this gave the film a spontaneity, an edge, and it also serves the subject, he said. He filmed without using steady cams, elevated shots, or zoom lenses, quote, everything that for me might be considered a safety net, unquote. The crew shot at or near the actual locations involved in the Holocaust. The production received permission from Polish authorities to film on the grounds of the Auschwitz-Birkenau State Museum, but objections to filming within the actual death camp were raised by the World Jewish Congress. To avoid filming inside the actual death camp, the film crew constructed a replica of a portion of the camp just outside the entrance of Birkenau. Shooting Schindler's List was deeply emotional for Spielberg, as the subject matter forced him to confront elements of his childhood, such as the anti-Semitism he had faced. He was surprised that he did not cry while visiting Auschwitz. Instead, he found himself filled with outrage. Of the shoot, Spielberg had said, I was hit in the face with my personal life, my upbringing, my Jewishness, the stories my grandparents told me about the Shoah, and Jewish life came pouring back into my heart. I cried all the time. John Williams composed the stirring score for Schindler's List, and violinist Ichak Perlman performed the main theme. Schindler's List premiered on November 30, 1993 in Washington, D.C., and had a widespread release on December 15, 1993 in the United States. Often listed among the greatest movies ever made, the film received universal acclaim for its tone, acting, atmosphere, score, cinematography, and direction. It was also a box office success, earning $322 million worldwide on a $22 million budget. Schindler's List was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and ended up winning seven, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score. The film earned numerous other accolades, including seven BAFTAs and three Golden Globe Awards. Following the success of the picture, Spielberg founded the Survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, a nonprofit organization with the goal of providing an archive for the film testimony of as many survivors of the Holocaust as possible in order to save their stories. Today, he continues to finance that work. Spielberg used proceeds from the film to finance several related documentaries, including Annie Frank Remembered, The Lost Children of Berlin, and The Last Days. In 2007, the American Film Institute ranked Schindler's List 8th on its list of the 100 best American films of all time. The movie was designated as culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress in 2004 and selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Today on Rotten Tomatoes, you can go see that Schindler's List gets a 98% fresh rating and an average critical score of 9.2 out of 10, as well as an audience score of 97%.
Listen with me now to the original trailer for Schindler's List. Sausage, cheeses, blugger, caviar. And of course, who could live without German cigarettes? Get as many as you can find. It's more fresh fruit. The real rarities, oranges, lemons, pineapples. I need several boxes of Cuban cigars, the best. And dark unsweetened chocolate, not in the shape of ladyfingers. A chunk of chocolate, big as my hand. You sample as wine tastings. 900, no, make it 10 for Wednesday. All this stuff here goes to mattresses, factory. Lost a worker. I expect to be compensated. He's on the list. Yes. Well, let's find him. Stern. 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 It's hard. Stern. Stop the train. He's here. Stop the train. Stop the train. I woke up from a dream this morning. I was broke and sharing a room with twelve people I didn't know. Who will want to start, huh? Do you have any questions, sir? Yeah, why is top down? I'm fucking freezing. Uh, what's your name? Okay, we are about to roll out the red carpet for our first guest, Annette Insdorf. But a heads up first that she and I may reveal key plot points, so if Schindler's List remains a blind spot for you, here's your chance and my strong recommendation to put us on hold and go watch it first, why don't you? All right, now that we're all back, it's time to say hello to Annette. She's a professor in the graduate film program of Columbia's School of the Arts, an internationally renowned film historian, and author of the book Indelible Shadows, Film and the Holocaust. And she last joined us for Cineversary episode number 11, that was four years ago, to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the 400 Blows. By the way, she's also the daughter of Holocaust survivors. It's Annette Insdorf. Welcome back to the Cineversary podcast, Annette. Thank you very much. Wonderful to have you back here. So let's get to it straight away. There's so much to talk about with Schindler's List and so little time. 
But why does it deserve to be remembered and honored 30 years later? And how has it stood the test of time? And for that matter, is it as important a film today as it was in 1993? Perhaps not, simply because it was really a breakthrough film in 1993. It became the most successful Hollywood film ever made about the Holocaust. And I mean successful critically, commercially, And in terms of awards, it won Best Picture and for the first time, Best Director for Steven Spielberg. And it widely seen, which was uh, something amazing at the time. Um, It was also beautifully crafted and it had a focus on a real rescuer. Um, And at that time in 1993, um, the focus on rescuers was not yet uh, a given because previous Mm. Holocaust films had centered on Jewish victims and Nazi perpetrators. But Spielberg understood that if there's an audience surrogate beyond the oppressed survivor or the criminal, one with whom a viewer would indeed want to identify, then you've got some real dramatic tension. And righteous Gentiles, that term, comprised a tiny fraction of the European population during World War II, but their existence is cause for celebration on screen and off. And this film, Schindler's List, came out around the same time as Eva Fogelman's inspirational book, Conscience and Courage, Rescuers of Jews During the Holocaust. Okay, It recounts varied and complex stories of wartime decency. And as survivors were increasingly encouraged to be interviewed on videotape about their experiences, The number of shorts, of documentaries, and of fiction features about how they survived, and often with whose assistance, kept growing. And I have to confess to you that in 1993, uh, I, like many people who teach or write about film professionally, did not have high expectations for Schindler's List. Uh, We thought, "Mm, is this going to be a Holocaust drama directed by the champion of feel-good fantasy? Um, A black and white epic from a director whose colorful adventures range from Jaws to Indiana Jones. And I remember saying that to bring back extinct dinosaurs in Jurassic Park is one thing, but to recreate the extermination of the Jews is another. Right. And my own reservations were compounded by a sense of how difficult it is to adapt this story of of Schindler to a fictional film, because I was contacted in the mid-1980s by Kurt Lutke the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of Out of Africa. Mm-hmm. He was the first to, to try adapting Thomas Keneally's 1982 book into a film. Okay, And I remember discussing with him the story f- from a cinematic perspective. And he confessed that the main problem was to seize on motivation. Mm-hmm. I mean, why? Why? At a time when Germans were actively or passively participating in the final solution, why did Oskar Schindler risk his life? to save over 1,100 Jews. Sure, yeah. And to be honest, neither of us could find a sufficiently satisfying answer to allow the audience into the psyche of Schindler, this profiteering, bon vivant, Nazi party member who turned into an altruist. Uh, But to Spielberg's credit, he engaged three gifted collaborators. Um, In July of 1989, the first draft of a new script was written by Stephen Zalian, who demonstrated his ability to deal with difficult dramatic material when he adapted Awakenings. Remember that film with Robert De Niro? Oh, yeah. And Zalian then made an impressive directorial debut with the film Searching for Bobby Fischer, 
from his own script. Spielberg then selected as the cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, a relatively unknown Polish-born DP who was familiar with the physical and the emotional landscape. And I remember how back in 1992, there were rumors that Spielberg was going to cast a star as Schindler, for example, uh, Kevin Costner or Mel Gibson. By January of 1993, he made what could have been seen as a daring decision. He cast Liam Neeson, who was not yet a star, just a brilliant actor, a European whose face was not familiar to the public. And together they created a motion picture that tells the story of Oskar Schindler in a heightened visual manner. It became a story of moral polarities between the demented, omnipotent Nazi commandant Goethe, played by Ray Fiennes, and the vulnerable, self-effacing Jewish accountant Stern, played by Ben Kingsley. Schindler is in between. He's linked to both characters by an opportunity he can manipulate, but later by an awareness that both men mirror different aspects of his own soul. (laughs) So interesting, yeah. At the time, I think once people saw the film, it was like, wow, this is a powerful dramatic story. It's based on a true story. Yeah, so those would be my basic responses to your question. Oh, we could go on for days talking about the many merits of Schindler's List, can't we? If you ask me this question, I'll just briefly kind of give you a few of my own opinions here. This is one of the most emotionally powerful films of all time, and the ending could be the most humbling, moving, and memorable conclusions to a motion picture ever created. I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. Um I have no personal history. I have no, you know, ancestors who were in the Holocaust or anything like that. But of, of course, it's a subject, uh, you know, close to my heart, just in terms of a, a student of history. And Spielberg certainly has that immense power to move us emotionally. Some people accuse him of being overly sentimental. That's just fine with me. I, I'm okay with that. And in a film like this, uh, I think the sentiment is well earned and deserved. Of course. I think that, yeah, as you said, it it endures as a crucial historical document, of course, detailing the true story of Oscar Schindler and his efforts to rescue this group of, uh, I guess it's around 1,200 Jewish workers Mm -hmm. from the horrors of the Holocaust. The list is an absolute good. The list is life. All around its margins lies the gulf. And, and through its unflinching portrayal of the atrocities committed by the Nazis in Poland and different concentration camps, the film emphasizes the vital importance of learning from the past, right? Embracing the truth about the persecution and mass killing of the Jews. So previously, I'm sure you're, you're much more of a historian on this, but we'd never seen such a brutally realistic depiction of the Holocaust in a non-documentary type feature film, right? This would have been kind of groundbreaking. We hadn't seen it in Hollywood films, but mm-hmm. yes, there were many, many films made in Europe, for example, yes. that mm-hmm. were brilliant and graphic and disturbing and accurate. I mean, I, I teach a, a whole course on Holocaust cinema at Columbia, right, right, and the majority of the films I show are not from the United States, with the exception of None Shall Escape, which was made in Hollywood in 1944, directed by Andre de Toth, and is amazingly prescient because um, it ends with a trial. I mean, it's, ba- it's basically set during a trial that prefigures the Nuremberg trial that would take place a year later. Um, so I go that one. 
and I showed to be or not to be, which is Ernst Lubitsch's black comedy about we the whole covered that a couple of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I'm going to maybe disagree with you slightly, and I, I appreciate your own uh, sense of how deeply moved you were watching the end of the film. Mm. I sometimes, in watching Spielberg's movies in general. I feel like he might have exercised just a wee bit of restraint at the very end when he, for example, in Saving Private Ryan or in Schindler's List, for me, just goes one step too far okay. in presenting the emotion on screen as opposed to letting me come to my own sense of the emotion. Um, it's just a little bit too Hollywoodish. The violins are too audible. The, the similarity of Schindler in the penultimate sequence asking, oh, you know, why didn't I save more? I could have saved more. Or at the end of Saving Private Ryan, the question of, was I good enough? Did I do enough? Mm. Those for me become a wee bit gratuitous, Okay, but they are part of the conventions of Hollywood filmmaking because these films are aimed at a mass audience. That's true. And the films that I value so much don't have the same kinds of pretensions, shall we say? They, they, they're not going to try to reach millions upon millions of viewers around the world. They will be content to reach what in France are called les salles d'art et d'essai, the, the, the art houses for films. Right. Now, these are absolutely fair points. And uh, of course, everyone is entitled to their own opinion on it. But yes, I've heard uh, similar echoes from other people who aren't quite as enamored of some of Spielberg's touches. But for me, I mean, it, it just works. And I think it's perfectly toned there. But yeah, so let's briefly talk here about more ways in which Schindler's List might have been innovative or influential or maybe the first of its kind in any way. Now, you mentioned, of course, being a film historian, you teach Holocaust cinema and write about it, of course. So you're going to know some of the precursors, you know, some of the films like Night and Fog and The Great Dictator and some of these other approaches, uh, whether it's a Hollywood approach or internationally before Schindler's List. This isn't the, the first film on the Holocaust by any stretch. But how was it the first of its kind in any way? Well, I mean, it was not really innovative okay. because, for example, Sophie's Choice, directed back in 1982 by Alan Pakula, starring Meryl Streep mm -hmm. in a powerhouse performance, was already using sepia. I remember he he um, hired the magnificent director of photography, Nestral Mendros, who worked with the French New Wave directors like Truffaut. And they used sepia for the sections that were set in Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, Schindler's List was more influential okay. than innovative yeah. because it established the commercial viability of the Holocaust, which previously had not been <laughs> deemed exactly uh, commercial material, um, oh, except, of course, you know, if you go back for far enough to the post-war films like um, The Diary of Anne Frank and Judgment at Nuremberg, but these were, for me, very traditional Hollywood versions, movies that were adapted from previous material that had already proven its commercial or its marketability, shall we say. But what I think Spielberg did quite brilliantly was the sophisticated cinematic storytelling. Yes. Especially the opening sequence. In my classes, every single year at Columbia, even when I'm not teaching the Holocaust or Schindler's List, I show them the opening sequence approximately four minutes worth. This is where you see a hand lighting a Sabbath candle in color. Right. Mm -hmm. Prayer in Hebrew. This image of continuity provides the frame of Schindler's List, which is 
survival, ritual, celebration. And when the candle burns, which suggests the passage of time, the smoke denoting its end becomes the smoke from a train. Yes. The film turns into black and white. And color, which has been connected to continuity, is then suppressed until the war is over, except for that famous scene of the little girl in the red coat. That's right. What we're seeing here is a, a rather brilliant use of color versus black and white, uh -huh. of the soundtrack suggesting a sort of ancient, ritually Jewish experience. But then the candle ends, the train comes in, and you know that you're suddenly within the world of Holocaust imagery. Yes. So, so that to me is, is worth showing in a classroom. And the film unfolds between hands, hands that light candles. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, you have hands that place stones on a grave, both in color. So there's a beautiful symmetry. I guess what I'm pointing to is more the cinematic storytelling that marks Spielberg as one of the great brilliant practitioners of Hollywood filmmaking, perhaps more than the story itself. Mm, totally agree. His, his narrative strategy, you know, if you look at films that are not about the Holocaust, but let's say American films on Vietnam, mm -hmm. you may notice some connection, namely in Apocalypse Now, Coppola, in, in Platoon, Oliver Stone, respectively. The characters played by Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen, that's coincidence, <laughs> They're caught between clearly delineated moral poles. Yeah. Midway through Coppola's version of Heart of Darkness, the protagonist shoots a Vietnamese family in a little boat, signifying his crossing over into the realm of violent madness that Kurtz, by Marlon Brando, embodies. Mm. And at the halfway point of Oliver Stone's drama, Platoon, the, there's a hero who has wavered between two mentors, the peaceful Willem Dafoe, and the demented Tom Berenger. And he places himself on the side of Defoe. Yeah. And like you said, this film has kind of a, a triangle, if you will, between Absolutely. Schindler, Girth, and Stern. Thank you. Mm -hmm. He's between the powerful Nazi and the vulnerable Jew. And there's a scene, his choice to protect the Perlmans, that distances him from Goethe and leads to a magnificent scene <laughs> in which Schindler tempts the drunken Nazi Goethe with the power of good. He's trying to seduce him to be good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, what happens? Goethe tries to be, I'm on the good for a few hours, but then he can't resist. He reverts to his ways no. and he's... It's everything. not in his DNA. No. no. Power is when we have every justification to kill. And we don't. You think that's power? That's what the Emperor said. A man stole something, he's brought in before the Emperor, he throws himself down on the ground, he begs for mercy. He knows he's going to die. And the Emperor pardons him. This worthless man, he lets him go. I think you are drunk. That's power. That is power. So um, at the time, I was not the only one who felt that the score was a bit too sentimental. 
other elements were very much criticized at the time. I remember this amazing Village Voice symposium. That was the great alternative newspaper in New York in 1994. The cover story of March 29th, 94, brought together eight artists and critics, myself included, for a symposium entitled um, Schindler's List, Myth, Movie, and Memory. I was with a very articulate group that had the Village Voices film critic Jay Hoberman, Art Spiegelman, the creator of Mouse, you know, that wonderful graphic novel that uses animals to depict Jews and Germans and and the historian James Young. I was shocked in that room to find that I was the only one defending Schindler's List. Oh, you're kidding. Hmm. Wow. Not kidding. They were talking about the colloquialization of the Holocaust, the trivialization of the Holocaust. I even Mm. remember what Art Spiegelman said, that Jews were functioning as an occasion for Christian redemption in Schindler's List. And I think he said something like the main dream image that the movie evokes for me Oh, he said something, an image of six million emaciated Oscar Award statuettes hovering like angels in the sky, all wearing striped uniforms. Mm. That's harsh. It's biting. Um, And I remember Jacobs, the independent filmmaker um, avant-garde, he attacked Spielberg for having the character of Helen Hirsch, played by Embeth Davids. Mm -hmm. She ends up being the, she becomes the maid. Um, in Goethe's household. And he questioned, why was she being sexualized? In fact, that was a whole topic of conversation that day that Spielberg shot her in this thin white slip. And the the question at the time was, why objectify this character into the sexual realm mm-hmm. when in fact she could exist without that? You know, So, so he was criticized then. I, I guess if the film were to come out now, the same question would be raised if it were a film of 2023. Yeah, fair criticism to some extent. But here's a question. What kind of feedback have you garnered from the Jewish community, from Holocaust survivors? Was this film well-received by the majority of them? Yes. There was tremendous gratitude that a filmmaker of Spielberg's stature Mm -hmm. was taking on, I won't say their experience, but the world of the Holocaust with a greater degree of authenticity yeah. than have found in other films. Right. Let's face it, there's brutal realism here. There are extremely harsh, disturbing details. Uh, it's 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 not going to be for every sensibility, but if you're going to stay, I would assume, close to the historical facts, I don't think he pulls a lot of punches here. Do you agree? I do, especially because the source novel, if you want to call it that, it's not even a novel. It's a nonfiction book consisting of interviews that Thomas Keneally did Mm. with survivors who had been part of Schindler's List. Turning that into drama is a lot more challenging than simply taking, let's say, one Jewish survivor story or one Jewish family or one Jewish town. Right. You know, this is a fragmented kind of source text. And I believe that it was accurate. I mean, my mother knew personally many of the people who had been on Schindler's List. Wow. Because my mother, though she was essentially a teenager at the time, she was part of the same trajectory that we see in the film. First, she was taken with her mother to the Krakow ghetto. From there, she went to the Plashov 
camp. She remembered Amon Goethe with frightening detail. Oh, goodness. My mother used to talk about Goethe quite often when I was, once I was 18, I, I heard stories. She then ended up in Auschwitz with her mother. Oh, goodness. And wow. uh, they were then taken to Bergen-Belsen. And my mother survived, but her mother died 11 days before the liberation. Mm, so sorry. Wow. My mother was was an extraordinarily strong woman because she saw every single Holocaust film that I was writing about mm -hmm. for the book, you know, Indelible Shadows. She wanted to see them and she would provide a running commentary that was sometimes respectful and saying, yes, this is how it was. I mean, I was surprised, actually, when we saw Roman Polanski's The Pianist, which I had seen in Cannes, and I wasn't that crazy about it. I thought it got a little too emotional at the end. Um, my mother said, yes, yes. And, and she, you know, wanted Polanski to know how much she approved of that film as well. Mm. Um, but with NBC's miniseries Holocaust that was aired in 1978, yes. she started laughing. She started laughing while we were watching and I turned to her and I said, what's so funny? And she said, yeah, right. They let us keep our suitcases in Auschwitz. You know, she, she, she knows. She, she knows the details. Right, right. She could see right through the phoniness. Yeah. yeah. So she saw Schindler's List with me twice. Mm. The first time was in a screening room for VIPs. And she and I were both positive, but shall we say in a, a slightly reserved way. And we went back to see it a few months later when it played at a second-run movie house that was then called the Cineplex Odeon. It was in the West uh, 50s, like 52nd or 51st Street. Mm -hmm. And we were probably among the only white Caucasian viewers <laughs> because it was a Sunday afternoon and it was families. They had brought their children and it was a primarily African-American and Hispanic audience. Okay. I ended up watching the audience more than the film. And that became a, a partisan, a defender, because I saw how these kids, for example, who had never even heard of the Holocaust, mm -hmm. were getting their first awareness, their, their sensitization to what had happened during World War II to an oppressed people. Sure. And because they responded deeply and in a you know, moved way, I decided that the film, whatever I might have considered to be its flaws was in fact providing a public service. That's a good way to put it. They were not going to watch documentaries. They weren't mm -hmm. going to read the the ghetto diaries of, uh, you know, Emmanuel Ringelblum. You know, this they, they were going to go to a movie, a, a fiction. Sure. <laughs> so for me, this became extremely important. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. And at what special care must be taken and, and maybe, you know, responsibilities assumed by filmmakers who attempt to depict the Holocaust in feature films? Can you name a few other movies that get it right in your book versus maybe some other films that don't? Yeah, I mean, there's even more discussion these days than there was in the early 90s about an expression that I will cite, Holocaust porn. And words, the, the the need to avoid, if possible, graphic images of atrocity that are reenactments, recreations. I mean, that allow any skeptical viewer to say, yeah, well, that didn't happen. I mean, you know, I'm watching actors, I'm watching special effects, I'm watching smoke. And sometimes less is more. So I very often prefer to show in my classes 
the films that exercise great restraint. Here I'll mention the film that I know Steven Spielberg studied before he made Schindler's List. It's called Korczak, K-O-R-C-Z-A-K, directed by the great Polish filmmaker Andrzej Wajda, spelled W-J-D-A, in 1990. And Spielberg clearly used some of the young actors from that film in his. And Korczak, it's the name of the famous Polish-Jewish educator Janusz Korczak, who had to relocate his orphanage in Warsaw into the Warsaw Ghetto. And the film traces the last year or two of his life. He was offered his freedom. He had papers that he could have escaped easily. Um, he, he could have lived. He chose to go with his 200 children, at least, to Treblinka. He knew the transport was taking the children. He wouldn't leave them alone. Mm. And this black and white film that Vida made, I show in my classes all the time. And I know Spielberg saw it because Spielberg nominated Vida for an honorary Oscar in 1999. Okay. And Vida received it. And it was handed to him on stage by Jane Fonda, <laughs> another politically engaged artist. When it's too melodramatic and schmaltzy, when it's too graphically violent, I do pull back. Okay. And I almost would rather show an outrageously stylized movie like Seven Beauties, Lena Wertmuller's film, because it's being honest that it is a comically inclined, a biting satire recreation. It's a fiction film, and it never lets you forget it. So there's a couple of recommendations from someone who studied Holocaust cinema. Now, this is the 30th anniversary year of Schindler's List. That's why we're here, of course. But what do you believe, if I were to ask you this question, what is the film's greatest gift to viewers? Well, it isn't the film itself, which which is a great gift because it sensitizes through drama. It makes us feel in ways that might not be so obvious in other kinds of motion pictures. But for me, Schindler's List was a pretext for the Shoah Foundation. Spielberg created an institution that is both commemorative and educational. He considered it his mandate to have every Holocaust survivor videotaped for the Shoah Foundation. I remember that, yeah. He wanted to heighten the camera as a weapon of testimony and memory, not just as a great fiction filmmaker, but as someone who provided the impetus for the Shoah Foundation to reach survivors. I will never forget how he tried to convince my mother to do a Holocaust testimony. He met her at uh, a New York Film Critics Awards dinner. And my mother said, no, no, I'm very private. I, I'd rather not. And he said, no, you have to. It's your responsibility. You owe it to the world to tell your story. And my mother, who was an extremely savvy woman, looked at Spielberg and said, well, there might be a way. She said, you know how my daughter's always inviting you to be a guest in her series at the 92nd Street Y, and you haven't done it yet? <laughs> and he, he, she, he said, yes. She goes, when you are her guest at the Y, we will give you an audio tape that we'll do for you. <laughs> uh, mom's looking out for daughter. Yeah. Sly but effective, right? <laughs> he looked at her and said, you should be running CAA. <laughs> <laughs> Great story. 
right after, well, that was soon after that, I actually interviewed my mother and my then assistant was the camera person and she did record her testimony. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, a win-win for everybody there. Yeah. So Annette, is there any current or forthcoming projects, books, events you'd like to tell us about? Anything coming up? Well, I'm actually going to be doing another one of my online classic film series for the 92nd Street Y on Holocaust cinema. Oh, timing is good. I did one series uh, about four or five months ago, five nights, I think it was, six films. And the response was so positive that they were basically asking me to do another. So the new one, the, the four nights, it's all Sunday nights in June, um, Schindler's List is one of the four, and so is another very, very famous film, and that's Shoah, the documentary by Claude Lanzmann. I'm going to show this uh, Hollywood film of 1944, 19, yes, uh, called None Shall Escape. That you mentioned, yes. The fourth one is from Poland. I think it's one of the two or three greatest Holocaust films ever made, but it's technically a documentary called Photographer. It was directed by Dariusz Jabloński. And it's it's an amazing film that takes as its point of departure the slides that were taken in the Lodge Ghetto by the accountant. He was an accountant there and he recorded life in the ghetto. But what's fascinating is not only what you see in the slides, but what the slides leave out. Wow. Well, that's a great series. You got four fantastic films lined up and it's well-timed for the 30th anniversary of this film, but also to remember those other movies as well. Absolutely. Well, Annette, we appreciate your expertise, especially when it comes to Holocaust cinema, and we express our sincere gratitude for returning to Cineversary and helping us parse a challenging but crucial text like Schindler's List. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Mm, gratitude galore to Annette for coming back to Cineversary and sharing her honest opinions and observations about Schindler's List. Annette's time with me was limited due to her busy schedule, so we weren't able to delve into quite as many aspects of the movie as we usually do, and truth be told, Schindler's List is a work that even a long-form podcast chat, you know, can only skim the surface on. But I am so appreciative that we were able to connect and engage in what I hope you agree was a quality discourse on the film. Thanks again, Annette. Now we shift to part two of our focus for July, Saving Private Ryan. Here's what we know about this picture, Wikipedia-wise. Saving Private Ryan is a 1998 American war film directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Robert Rodat. Set in 1944 in France during World War II, it follows a group of soldiers, led by Captain John Miller, who is portrayed by Tom Hanks, on their mission to extricate Private James Ryan, played by Matt Damon, from the war after his three brothers are killed in battle. The cast also includes Edward Burns, Tom Sizemore, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, Vin Diesel, Adam Goldberg, and Jeremy Davies. Inspired by the books of Stephen E. Ambrose and accounts of casualties among members of a single family such as the Nyland brothers, Rodat drafted the script and Paramount Pictures hired him to finish the writing. The project came to the attention of Hanks and Spielberg, whose previous successes secured the project's development. Spielberg wanted to make Savoring Private Ryan as authentic as possible, so he hired Frank Darabond and Scott Frank to perform uncredited rewrites based on research and interviews with veterans. The main cast went through a week-long boot camp, in fact, to better understand the soldier experience. When describing what interested him about the project, Spielberg said, quote, So what you're doing is sending eight people out, all of whom have parents, to rescue one boy and send him back to his mom when any or all of these kids along the mission route could be killed. 
That was the central tug that made me want to tell the story, unquote. Spielberg had a lifelong interest in WW2, having made war films as a teenager because, quote, it was the seminal conversation inside my family. My parents talked about the Holocaust, and they talked about combat and war. And I was born knowing this. My dad was a veteran. He had many veterans over to the house, and I became absolutely obsessed based on my father's stories, recollections, and also based on the World War II movies, unquote. He described the project ultimately as a tribute to his father. Filming occurred from June to September in 1997 on a $65 to $70 million budget, almost entirely on location in England and Ireland. The opening Omaha Beach battle was the most demanding scene, costing $12 million to film over four weeks, with 1,500 extras involved. As you probably already guessed, longtime Spielberg collaborator, composer John Williams, wrote the memorable score for Saving Private Ryan. The film was first released on July 21, 1998, and it became one of the year's most successful movies, earning critical acclaim for its graphic portrayal of combat. World War II veterans actually described the combat scenes as the most realistic portrayal of their own experiences, and some were unable to watch it due to their traumatic memories. Ryan ended up earning nearly $482 million, making it the second highest grossing picture of 1998, and it went on to win many accolades. So at the 71st Academy Awards, it took home the statuette for Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects Editing. The film was also nominated for Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Music, Best Production Design, and Best Makeup. But there was a twist. Saving Private Ryan lost the Best Picture Oscar to Shakespeare in Love, and it was considered one of the biggest upsets in the awards history. In 2014, the movie was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, and the AFI has placed Saving Private Ryan at number 71 on its listing of the 100 greatest American films. A look over at Rotten Tomatoes shows that Ryan gets a 97% fresh rating, where the audience score awards Private Ryan 95%, and the average critical score clocks in at 8.7 out of 10. We have got the vintage trailer for Saving Private Ryan queued up. All set? Dear Mr. Brian Boyd, no doubt by now you have received full information about the untimely death of your son. However, there are some personal details that believe I very strongly. No words of mine can ever be. He was a fine soldier. Same. Regarding the circumstances leading to his death, felt his loss tremendously. Robert's commanding officer's of heroic service to his country. He was a great soldier, dedicated friend. The grace of God and the aid of your Those son. Of us I'm alive. Please accept my most sincere condolences in our memories. To you, my deepest sympathy. Colonel, I've got something you should know about. Yes. These two men died in Normandy. This one in Omaha Beach. Sean Ryan. This one in Utah. Peter Ryan. This man was killed last week in New Guinea. Daniel Ryan. The three men are brothers, sir. I've just learned that this afternoon their mother's getting all three telegrams. That's not all. There's a fourth brother, the youngest. He's somewhere in Normandy. We don't know where. That boy's alive. We're going to send somebody to find him, and we're going to get him the hell out of there. Some private in the 101st lost three of his brothers, and he's got a ticket home. It's not going to be easy finding one particular soldier in the whole damn war. Children. No, 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 we can't take the kids. 
don't know anything about Ryan. It's just a name. But if finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well, then that's my mission. As with our earlier conversation, my next guest and I will be heading deep in the weeds as we take a spoiler-filled trek through this movie, so consider it your patriotic duty of sorts to screen this film for the first time if you are coming in blind. We all good? Let's make way for Mr. Kendrick. I am thrilled to welcome back to Cineversary James Kendrick, professor of film at Baylor University, movie critic for QNetwork.com, and the author of several books on filmmakers and the cinema. Jim, this marks your third straight summertime appearance on our podcast. So you were here two years ago to chat with me about Raiders of the Lost Ark, and last summer it was E.T. Now we are here to bear witness to the glory of Saving Private Ryan. So I think we've got a bit of a trend going here, three years in a row. Hey, I'm just I'm just glad to be back. <laughs> As are we. Always fun to talk to you. You are our resident Spielberg expert. I couldn't think of anybody better to talk to about one of the great Spielberg works. So let's get into it, Jim. Why is Saving Private Ryan, in your opinion, worthy of kudos and commemoration 25 years later? Yes, it's the silver anniversary, right? I think it's silver, yeah. But yeah, how has it stood the test of time? And do you think the movie still connects with audiences? I mean, absolutely. I mean, really on the on on the short list of of great war films, you know, the films that really bring to bear all the powers of the cinema to representing uh, combat in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, Saving Private Ryan is 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 definitely, definitely up there. You know, I watch it uh, at least every couple of years because I teach a course on Spielberg's films at Baylor. That's right. Um, and Saving Private Ryan is one of the films that we watch. So at least every other year, mm-hmm. uh, I rewatch it with with an audience of college students, some of whom have seen it, some of whom haven't. Um, but they are invariably deeply moved by it, uh, shaken by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they 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 have a genuine experience, and so. In, in in that respect, I think it is very much still stood the test of time that it is not a film that is easy to dismiss or easy to not um, take very seriously. And, you know, watching these, you know, 20, 21, 22 year old college students talking about it in class really, really shows that it does still very much connect with viewers. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that you give me that perspective as a professor, because uh, that's kind of the litmus test, right? I mean, as far as trying to gauge a contemporary audience, uh, you know, fresh eyes on this film, you can't do better than to ask an instructor of a film class. And yeah, just to gauge the reaction, it sounds like it still resonates. It still packs a powerful punch. You know, all these generations removed and um, not only from, you know, 1998 and the release of this film, but World War Two, for that matter. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is I'm not saying this is a history lesson because we should never learn our history, per se, from movies. But, um, you know, it is based on an historical major event. It's not uh, a Michael Crichton, you know, work of fiction. This is a fictional kind of tale, but it has some loose representations in reality we could talk about in a bit. It is kind of an eye-opener in terms of maybe younger generations learning a little bit more about World War II, but also about the power of film. I mean, this is this is an extremely impactful movie. I think we can agree, right? And so 
You know, if, if you were to ask me this question, why is it worthy of celebration 25 years later? God, so many thoughts run through my head, right? I mean, this could be the finest movie yet made about the soldiers' experience in World War II. Do you agree with that? I mean, as far as when you think about World War II movies over the decades, there have been some fine ones. There's no question. There's been some good ones. Even in, I think it was the same year, there was the Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. It's a high benchmark, a high kind of standard to hold up against, but this could be the best of its breed for me anyway. And, and what do you think about that? Is this is this one of, if not the best World War II combat film you've seen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is it is very, very near the top. You know, a lot of it comes down to the way in which Spielberg and, of course, working with cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, who, you know, he had started working with on Schindler's List back in 93 and has worked with ever since, really redefined what the war film looks like. Uh, There just hadn't been a combat film that looked like Saving Private Ryan. And that that, that something is always very interesting, again, when I'm teaching the the film in my class, because all my students have seen subsequent war films that have been influenced by Saving Private Ryan and, and have similar aesthetics and similar kind of, uh, you know, visual techniques and sound effects and things right. that really were created uh, for this film. And so when you when you have a singular film that alters the way an entire genre treats its subject matter. That's something profound. That's something very rare. That's a game changer, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like so many so many war films now look to some degree like Saving Private Ryan, whereas if you go before Saving Private Ryan, nothing looked like it or felt like it or sounded like it. What was kind of the benchmark? Was it something like uh, The Longest Day? Or what did historians look at before Saving Private Ryan? Is Okay, this is one of the definitive World War II Hollywood films. Well, I think you kind of have two things going on, which is that one thing is that when Saving Private Ryan came out, you know, and you mentioned that Terrence Malick came out with The Thin Red Line that same year. But prior to those two films, no one had really been making World War II films. There had been all, very, very few. Mm. Um, there was one that came out in 88 called The Midnight Clear. Um, but before that, if you want to find like a major combat World War II film, you have to go back to Sam Fuller's the big red one. The big in red one. What is that? Like a 1980? 1980. Yeah, that's right. That, that was really, and I mean, there may be a few others scattered in there, but as far as from, from an American studio, that was really one of the last major. So y- there's not much to compare to. You have to go back to, yeah, Daryl Zanuck's The Longest Day in 62, or go back to the combat films that were being made during and immediately after World War II itself, you sure. know, Baton, you know, Sands of Iwo Jima, stuff like that. So you have that. But then the other thing is that you had had Vietnam films. In the 80s, you had mm-hmm. Platoon, you had Full Metal Jacket, Hamburger Hill. Platoon is a kind of a game changer in itself, too, because it shows the grunts experience in right. that war. But it's also somewhat representational of just you know the horrors, the carnage of warfare that can apply to a World War II. It is definitely a Vietnam-centric film. But as far as uh, raising that bar of you know realism, not pulling punches with truthful and brutal honesty about the casualties and the consequences of warfare, you know those two films in particular, Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket too, they kind of uh, set a new standard, right? So, right? so maybe the barometer was being raised a bit over the decades and, and getting closer to Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. But like you said, uh, by the time you get to Spielberg's work here in '98. It seems to have completely reset the rules. Yeah, there there, there wasn't much to compare it to that mm-hmm. wasn't 15, 20, 50 years older, right? And, you know, in those World War II combat films from the World War II era, for their time, 
they were very gritty. They were very realistic. As a matter of fact, the production code administration actually uh, sort of relaxed its standards on violence uh, for to allow some imagery into those films that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, but still, they don't. They, they were still within the strictures of expectations of that time. Mm-hmm. That you know, the the Vietnam film in the eighties really raised that bar. So, like you said, I think that what Saving Private Ryan did is it took the World War II combat film, but then took some of that more gritty reality that we'd come to expect from the Vietnam film and applied it to the World War II film and then went even further than that. Absolutely. So I want to get into uh, this with you a little bit more in the next question I asked you about how this film might have been innovative or influential, things like that. So let's shelve it briefly. Just to finish this thought about why is this movie, you know, deserving of all this praise, it's an exceptionally well-structured three-act story. It's very Mm -hmm. clearly segmented, if you really pay attention to it, because, you know, the first part, it begins with, of course, the D-Day invasion, which is an absolute mind-blower as far as an immersive, visceral experience. Absolutely. Then it shifts to this second act that focuses on trying to find Private Ryan. They get their orders. Now they have to find him. And that propels us to Act 3, wherein Ryan is found and saved. And if you actually stop and look, like on the Blu-ray, I'm pausing it, looking at the runtime on the, on the timeline at the bottom. It's almost perfectly in thirds, you know? Mm-hmm. And I even timed it. The exact midway point of the film is when the company learns where Ryan is. It, yeah. it, it just speaks to how clearly uh, structured and carefully organized this film is. The film is bookended by two mirroring sequences, the opening and closing shots of the American flag waving in the breeze. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of bookended uh, in between those. You've got two similar subjective shots of Miller being concussed by an explosion which temporarily halts his hearing. So it's almost like the first time, yeah, it's like you are there, you are him, you know, this is what it's like. But it's almost maybe a bit of foreshadowing as to the second time it comes around right before his death, it's like, yeah, I don't know, that's one too many concussions for this guy. (laughs) So I just love the classical structuring of the story. Mm -hmm. And you think about, of course, the casting, the thespians that are recruited for this endeavor, I mean, among the most impressive in the last 25 years, right? Oh, absolutely. The faces, they perfectly match the character to me. I mean, you ponder the prescience of assigning yet-to-be-big-namers like Matt Damon, Brian Cranston, Vin Diesel, Giovanni Ribisi, in these juicy parts. Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes the filmmakers look like geniuses, you know, ahead of their time casting these uh, yet-to-be-big stars. And even the bit players, Jim, they get it exactly right. They, they cast weighty actors in marginal roles. I think of Paul Giamatti. Yes. He steals a few scenes. He's in Ted Danson in this little throwaway part that, wow, okay, that's Mm -hmm. Ted Danson. I didn't, you got to pay attention. Wasn't expecting that. Yeah, right. Dennis Farina, you know, this great character actor, and and suddenly he's got a few seconds on screen. And then there's Harvey Presnell as the general who just absolutely looks that part, right? You know, he's fresh off of Fargo and he's, you know, wearing that part exactly. So the casting is absolutely spot on. And then just to kind of finish this thought, I think Private Ryan matters 25 years later in particular because it gets the small details right. And that enriches this epic story because it's an epic tale. Mm-hmm. It's a story replete with colossal themes, you know, all time great battle sequences, a cast to die for. But you have comparatively insignificant images and, and maybe relatively inconsequential little touches that actually can be more memorable than the momentous moments. 
So I'll give you a few examples. Horvath scooping up and collecting dirt from the various countries that he's fought in. Mm -hmm. The little French girl slapping her father's face. Henderson asking Mellish for some of his chewing gum. It's little touches like that. I don't know. They stick with me and they add so much color and texture to this big epic tale. So it's these small brush strokes, I think, that add invaluable depth and dimension to the characters. Do you find that there are some small moments in this film that really resonate for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and, and you're and you're right. I mean, when we talk about St. Private Ryan, you know, the first thing you tend to go for is the big things, the the battle scenes, the combat scenes, the violence, the, the major, major moments. But it, yeah, you're right, is that it works on a narrative and a character and an emotional level because there is so much attention paid to little details and little moments because, you know, and there was some debate, you know, when the movie first came out as to, well, what is it really saying? And, you know, is it simplifying the realities of war Mm. and is, is, is it overplaying the Americans? But, you know, I think that there are all kinds of little moments where Spielberg is reminding us that at the end of the day, these are human beings right. uh, who, who who are scared and they panic and they make bad decisions. And the, the, the moment that sticks out with me is the scene where they're going through the dog tags. Yeah. And they're trying to find if Ryan's dog tag is in there. And there's this line of wounded soldiers coming out of obviously some horrific scenario. And they're and they're joking around. They're making fun of the names. They're flipping the, uh, throwing the dog tags around because they're just they're they're burned out and they're exhausted and they just need a break and they need you know sort of a release and they're doing it with these dog tags. But then they look up and they see all these soldiers looking at them as they're walking by and they realize how disrespectful they're being. Yes, that each one of those dog tags is a is a dead son. It's a dead father. It's a dead brother. Um, And they're treating them just like nothing and how easy it is for even the good characters to lose perspective. And that's part of the horror of war. And I think it's a a part of what the film is getting at is that we like to think that we would always respond in the best possible way, that we would be the ones doing the right thing, that we would be the ones being brave. We wouldn't be the corporal Upham who freezes in terror and allows his friend to be killed, but who knows? That's that. That's how people are. Yeah, that's another great example. Absolutely. So I, I did say we were going to talk a bit here about the innovative nature of the film, how it was maybe inspiring or influential, first of its kind in any way, for that matter. Yeah. What do you know about uh, just the innovative nature of Private Ryan? I mean, certainly the look that Spielberg and Kaminsky came up with in trying to kind of replicate the bleached out desaturated um, you know look of celluloid uh, at that time and you know it, it, it's a similar kind of thing that he did with uh, Schindler's List and shooting Schindler's List in black and white which makes it feel more immediate not because the holocaust took place in black and white but because the images that we've seen of it are typically in black and white so that's the association that we have mm-hmm. you can make a similar kind of argument with uh saving private ryan even though it's it's in color but the color is is so desaturated True. it's so bleached out that again it more looks like images that you can imagine actually from 1944 you know from 1943 that, that it replicates that in a in a very immersive kind of way well put and then, of course, just the the way in which, of course, you know, you go back to the, the D-Day invasion sequence that really kind of starts the film. The manner in which Spielberg and Kaminsky just immerse you 
in the chaos. And what's so brilliant about that whole sequence is that it's so chaotic and yet you can completely understand what's going on. Even though you've never even met these characters, this is this is the introduction to the characters. This is when we meet Miller and Hovarth and uh, Jackson and Mellish and all of them. Yeah, good point. Um, that somehow Spielberg manages to put together a narrative that we can follow through all this chaos without in any way diminishing the complete chaotic nature of it. Yeah, although the combination of techniques that he uses here, this array of, of different filmmaking techniques to achieve the realism, like the shaky handheld camera, mm-hmm. uh, you know, use uh, the, the fast cuts, the jarring juxtapositions, the creative sound effects, the immersive sound design, like you said, the desaturation of the colors, even skipping frames of film, I was reading to create like this sped yes. up unsettling kineticism. I, I think it just disorients you. Yes. You're right that you can follow, you can kind of pick up what of course why they're there what they need to do they need to get forward right they need to get off the beach and and we're introduced to the characters it's a great point but yet it's so disorienting it's it, we're not allowed to collect our bearings and nor are the characters right you can't really get your equilibrium back because everything is so shaky queasy unsettled and, and it's armageddon around them right mm-hmm. the raw viscera the cascading graphic violence the brutality and, and like i said the queasy camera work the unrelenting pace It doesn't allow these wounded soldiers to properly process what they're experiencing. And all of these elements combine to create unforgettable sequences, especially in the first, you know, 25 or so minutes. And and no one had ever really seen warfare so credibly and and so viscerably rendered on screen. Right, Jim? And at least in a scope this epic and extended. So as you were saying, with previous World War II films, and, and not to besmirch them, some of them are excellent productions, great movies, great stories. But yeah, often they lack the verisimilitude or the production values or, or maybe the creative talent to bring them to life so convincingly. Yeah, and, and some of it was that Spielberg obviously can command a budget mm-hmm. and, you know, technology and, you know, all, all, all the people necessary to, to bring that, that vision to life. But I do think that he went about it in a way that others hadn't really thought of before. Okay. That, you know, no one had thought to be quite that deep into the chaos. And like you said, to sort of bring to bear all of these different techniques, some of which are objective, some of which are subjective. A, a really good uh, example is their, is their use of the 45 degree shutter, which creates that kind of stroboscopic effect so that when things explode, you can see in sharply rendered detail little pieces, you know, flying out that would normally just be like a blur. Yeah. And that's something that you're not going to register consciously in the moment, but that's something that most people had never seen before. They hadn't seen an explosion really look like that. And then, of course, when you're talking about pe- people's bodies and the viscera, uh. then it makes it even that much more unsettling because you're seeing this level of detail, even though it's in real time uh, in the moment. Spielberg often gets painted with the broad brush of sentimentality, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it, it's an incredibly unsentimental depiction of warfare yeah especially the first 25 minutes or so oh yeah i mean he's not tugging on heartstrings here he's just showing chaos he's just showing what it is exactly and i can and i saw i saw saving private ryan in a theater on opening day um and i was primed to some degree because i'd read you know stories about it about his most realistic war film is something you've never seen before but i still remember not being prepared and i can i have a very strong sense memory of the D-Day sequence. And I remember the the thing that really got me was at the very beginning, the boats are arriving. 
and there's that shot where the camera's in the back of the boat looking out toward everybody in it and the the front falls open and then just everybody in the boat is just eviscerated with machine guns like they didn't even get a chance to get off the boat they're literally just shredded in front of the camera and it's like how horrifying and to and to open the battle scene with that which is a whole boat full of men just getting slaughtered right and you have to trust that Spielberg and his collaborators did their homework and this is what i've read i have to trust as much but they didn't exaggerate things like details like that. Like they, a lot of these no. men were just set up for slaughter, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And you have to remember that, you know, the U.S. government during the war had a very strict policy about not showing American bodies. Mm -hmm. And so as much as people on the home front were informed about what was going on, visually, a lot of that was missing. And I think because because they did see that in Vietnam, there tends to be this sort of idea that somehow World War II was cleaner war, not as methy, not as gruesome in some strange way. Well, morally so. I mean, because it was easy easy to say we were trying to free the world of tyranny and, and preserve liberty. So in terms of moral imperative, it's easier to draw differences uh, from something like Vietnam, which was a moral quandary. Right. But I think what you're saying is, Hey, folks, uh, especially those who, who don't know much about World War II, again, be careful. Don't learn your, don't learn your history from the movies. But it was probably more bloody <laughs> and a yeah. lot more violent and a lot more you know, inhumane than later wars. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just the, the, the real cost of that, which, again, I think is, is a major theme of the film, of a very important element of, of what the film is saying. Absolutely. But the film also devoted serious attention to character depth mm -hmm. because it examines the feelings and experiences of the American GI in what I think are, you know, believable and humanizing, uh, you know, approaches. These weren't stock characters or archetypes per se. I mean, every personality in Private Ryan, in my opinion anyway, has the capacity to surprise, to, uh, you know, mine thematically rich territory thanks to to what to savvy screenwriting to impressive acting so mm -hmm. these aren't cardboard characters they are pretty well fleshed out to the extent in which they get screen time not everybody gets as much screen time as other characters but that, that whole company of millers is is really well drawn out to me and and this is the heart of the film to me and you know it's so interesting <laughs> i know i'm jumping around a bit but as i was re-watching this film a couple days ago I thought it bore some similarities to The Fellowship of the Ring by Tolkien, uh, just in terms of the assembly of the company. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they go through the Mines of Moria, if you remember that, where they take a break <laughs> in the yep, middle. Yep. And then, of course, it's just all out hell. The character of Private Jackson, yeah, the, the sniper character. he's like the Legolas of this film. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. that's as far as I'll go. The only other thing was, if you remember Gandalf, and maybe you can draw a comparison to somebody like Miller, he makes that last stand on the bridge, just as Gandalf does at, at Casa Doom in Fellowship of the Ring. So I guess I was stretching a bit here, and I'm not saying that the <laughs> screenwriter was cribbing from Tolkien. <laughs> it's just, it's it's interesting because maybe Peter Jackson was was inspired a little bit by this film. No, I think that's, I, I had not, I, I have to admit, I had not thought of that, but I, you're, you're, you're very convincing. Well, and I, I do think it, it is worth noting, though, that, you know, both, Lord of the Rings and, and St. Barbara Ryan both work on the sort of classical structure mm, of the journey. Yes. Right. And I mean, I think that's, again, one of the reasons why this film works as well as it does, because it does fit into a very classical structure. Agreed. And then Private Ryan had a profound impact on the war film genre afterward. This is what you were talking about a moment ago. It left this indelible mark 
on later films and pop culture. You know, after a long period during which no significant WW2 movies were released, it rekindled this national interest in that war from people around the world and helped intensify the spotlight that was being increasingly shown on what was now at that time being called the greatest generation, right? Mm -hmm. So this was like a whole resurgence of pride in memory of the veterans and our country's part in World War II, right? So that was an important kind of element time-wise that Private Ryan played into. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, since then, there have been dozens and dozens of, you know, significant movies about World War II. It's like, we kind of re- rediscovered that war. It's like it yeah. never went away, but it had not been sort of central in a way, you know, and I think part of it had been ruminating on Vietnam and all of that. But then we sort of came back to it and, you know, we were coming up on, you know, the anniversary and there was all the talk of the greatest generation. And, you know, it was the same where I was really kind of at the center point of all of that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, we had reached the 50-year milestone in the early 90s of our involvement in that war. But it just, I don't know what it is. It just didn't seem to re- really hit, hit that cultural zeitgeist until Private Ryan. I don't want to assign it too much significance, but it just seemed like everybody was talking about World War II again. And then in the wake, you have the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, which to me, to yeah. this day, I got to tell you, it's the greatest television series I've ever seen, ever. Oh, it's amazing. Absolutely. Then you had The Pacific, which is the follow-up uh, series, very very good as well. Films like Enemy at the Gates, you know, uh, Black mm-hmm. Hawk Down, Fury, uh, you think of Dunkirk, yep. more recently 1917, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, and then All Quiet on the Western Front. I don't know if you saw the 2022 iteration, I but did. it seems like all of these films owe a little bit of debt, even just a little bit, to the look and the feel, the scope maybe, of Private Ryan. Yeah, because once you have a film like Saving Private Ryan that just basically resets the grammar used to depict its subject matter, Mm -hmm. well, then that's what everything gets judged against. And every filmmaker making a war film after that realized, like, okay, we're going to get compared to Private Ryan. You know, we're going to (laughs) get, we had a you know, in in some way match it or surpass it or, you know, do something uh, in our own way. But yeah, it's like, so many films and yeah you mentioned enemy at the gate i remember i remember seeing that i came out i think maybe three years after and it's it's a very good film but you can just see the influence of of saving private ryan on on literally every frame of it yep almost like a carbon copy of the look of the film this picture was a game changer literally in the way it inspired popular video games like I don't know if you've ever played or seen Call of Duty Mm -hmm. or Medal of Honor. Now, those are two pretty violent titles, but both set during World War II. And and this is no small point. I mean, tons of people play video games. Yeah. And especially as the video game industry morphs more and more with movies, you know, looking more and more like movies, there was a clear influence there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a through line. Let's talk a bit about ways that Saving Private Ryan was a reflection of its director, of Spielberg's talents and his passion for the subject matter, because I think this is this is important. It's not one man. It's not necessarily the auteur theory at work here. He had a hell of a lot of great help. But yeah, what does Spielberg bring to this project? He's always been interested in history. Um, he's always been fascinated by history. And I think when he's gone and we're looking back at his body of work, I think one of the things that people are going to be writing and talking about what was how important he was to giving visualization to 20th century American history. You're absolutely right. You know, I, I can't think of another American filmmaker who's sort of done more in terms of visualizing 
the recent past and and telling stories. And I think that, you know, what I find really interesting about that and what we really see in Saving Private Ryan is that he's always sort of reaching back to the recent past to find examples of recognizable and understandable heroism. Not over-the-top heroism, not impossible heroism, but rather just ordinary people put in extraordinary situations and forced to do extraordinary things, mm-hmm. sometimes just to survive, which is, of course, what they're doing in Saving Private Ryan. You know, you look back, and, and, and he'd been doing this early on. I mean, even, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, is, is said in the past. And, you know, and immediately his, quote-unquote, you know, serious movies, beginning with, like, The Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, and then Schindler's List. I mean, these are all historical films. Uh, Amistad. Yes, yes, you're 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 absolutely laying such a great argument here. You think about his seemingly effortless cinematic command of of epic scenes uh, of colossal scope in works like Go Back to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like when the when the mothership lands. That that's an epic colossal mm-hmm. scope kind of a scene. And then you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark. There are some World War II kind of remnants in there. I mean, it's a bit cartoonish, but I mean, it's super fun. But it, again, epic scope. And and then. Jurassic Park speaks for itself. So Mm -hmm. having already conquered the science fiction and action adventure genres, I think he crafts a war film for the ages here. And he he demonstrates that we are, again, in the hands here of a master filmmaker at the peak of his powers. He had already proved his ability to faithfully recreate powerfully plausible World War II scenarios with Empire of the Sun and, of course, Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. So it's not like this was the first time he dabbled in this era so I think he had been laying the groundwork. And uh, again, from what I understand, he was also paying homage to his father and his father's generation. Yes, very much so. The motivators here are important because he has a personal connection to the Second World War through his father. Mm-hmm. His father's service during that conflict helps fuel his passion for this subject matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would listen to it. You know, his father, I think, was a uh, primarily a radio operator stationed in Burma. Um, but, you know, he, he had all these stories to tell, uh, you know, about, about the war and the people that he knew and, and and just having that direct connection to it. And then, of course, you know, Spielberg grew up um, in predominantly Jewish neighborhoods when he was a child, many of which had Holocaust survivors in them. And so he was he was immersed in the stories of that time mm-hmm. and the experiences of that time. And I think that that really stuck with him. And again, and so. Saving Private Ryan is, you know, it's a singular work, but it's also part of a larger body of work that he's been crafting for decades, telling these great stories of of the recent past. Mm. Yeah, that's well articulated. I totally agree. So let's briefly pivot to, I just want to touch on the historical accuracy and truthfulness of Saving Private Ryan. And maybe why that is important. And we already talked about like the attention to detail, the realism. That's that's incredibly powerful here and, and, and speaks to the value of the film and why it deserves to be commemorated 25 years later. But yeah, what do we know about this in terms of, uh, okay, this is a fictional kind of a story, but it is loosely based on, what do you know? I think there were two separate incidences that were similar uh, in which you had several brothers who were fighting and two of the three or three of the four were killed. Yeah, I think the family was called the Nyland family. I guess they lost three of their four sons in, in World War mm-hmm. II. And, and the, you know, so the what I understand is the War Department dispatched this platoon to find the fourth Nyland son and send him home. So that, I mean, obviously it's not the same name, but it is four brothers. So that was right. real. And and so, so that's a major impetus for the, the narrative. 
Right. So the, so the basic concept of the narrative is is based in that. And then even if it's it's a fictional story with fictional characters, the backdrop mm. of it, yeah. you know, all of the attention to the hardware and the weaponry oh, yeah. and even like the sounds of things like a lot of the the guns and the tanks and the armaments sound different mm-hmm. uh, than because they weren't using a lot of the canned sound library sounds that we had come to associate with the war film. Okay. You know, they were creating new sounds that were more true to life. And, you know, I just think back to, you know, reading the stories at the time the film was released of World War II veterans and their response to the film. And that some of them literally had to walk out of it. Yeah, some of them were triggered. They pre- I think yeah, they got they, like PTSD kind of memories of, of wow, this is too close, close to reality. Right. And I think that speaks to to the power of the film because ultimately sure. they were the ones who were there. They were the ones who experienced what Spielberg was recreating cinematically. Yeah, your point a moment ago, the attention to detail, the period accuracy, you know, trying to source and recreate the uniforms, for example, the weapons, the tanks, the equipment used, but also the vernacular, I think is so crucial, the mm-hmm. jargon delivered by the characters. Fubar is mentioned several times. And yeah. and again, from, from what I've gathered, that was a real jargony thing that was, was spoken among the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And, and just so, the names, the nicknames for some of the things, some of the maneuvers that they would shout out. I have to trust that Spielberg and, and his collaborators you know, did their homework and that these are the actual kind of things that the soldiers and their commanders would say. Uh, which made it so much so, so much more interesting to me because just the the lingo it adds another layer of realism, right? Yeah, and and you know you had mentioned something early on that I think is really true. We talked about the faces, you know, because because people in different eras look different. I'm not sure why that is exactly, but you know, you see faces from the 20s or the 1880s. Yeah. It's like that person looks like they belong in that. There's something to be said for the casting because, like you mentioned earlier, most of these guys were not major stars Mm -hmm. they were fairly minor character actors uh who have since gone on to much more things partially because of their association here but they were very clearly being cast for their look and their sound and their feel that they they feel like a platoon of seasoned soldiers you know in the 1940s yeah and i think some of that comes through with you know the performances and and also just the interplay among them you know, the way they treat each other, the way they treat Corporal Upham differently because he's new. Again, that's sort of the sort of the, the lack of sentimentality. They don't all rush to try to, like, embrace him and bring him into the platoon and show him the ropes. Mm-hmm. It's more like you're the new guy. Figure it out. <laughs> right. Because we've survived all these things and you haven't. So, you know, there's almost like a hierarchy that outside of the war context is is horrible and unseemly. But within that world, I understand that. Totally. And I just love the chemistry or lack thereof just among the characters in this company. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are real characters to me, even if they never existed in reality. They're just so well illustrated and portrayed by the actors. The interplays, the dialogue, it just, it feels right. There's a dynamism between these guys. And there's there's a sense of brotherhood even when they don't get along. Yeah. Just the contrast between so many of these different characters. I think of the medic time and again and just, oh God, his death really gets me. Because of the buildup, because the filmmakers did their homework with, you know, he's the one who's incensed about the insensitivity about the dog tags. And he's the one who, who relays the story about his mother. And and he kind of took for granted that the attention his mother was paying. So it's little moments like that in certain characters that just make you absolutely invest in them. 
again, I think that all of the things we already talked about, cumulatively, they add up to this is a utterly believable, plausible, credible World War II recreation. But it's, again, it comes down to story and characters often. Yeah. You can get all this uh, period authenticity absolutely right, but if your story sucks, you're going to lose the audience. And if <laughs> if the characters, you know, if you're just not into them, yeah, it, you're gonna. It's gonna be meandering. So uh, again, they they hit on all cylinders here, in my opinion. Yes, I I completely agree. And it's um, like you said, like some kind of come to the fore and then recede to the background, and some get more moments. But it it's more the, the cohesiveness yeah. of the of the whole group. And and again, and that's that's a a long standing trait. The platoon is a microcosm uh-huh. of American society. Sure. Where you have all these different men from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and so it's. It's not new, but it's just done so incredibly well right. that it feels new. And again, in a lot of films, I can't point to predecessors and pick on them, not, nor, that, nor do I want to. <laughs> but a lot of war films, there's death of, of some characters, but usually they're minor characters. Maybe there's a couple of major characters who will bite the dust. But here, man, almost the entire company gets it by the end. Mm-hmm. And you only, you're only left with, I think, Reben, Upham. And Ryan, right? I think everybody else dies. Uh, so that raises the stakes all the more emotionally. Yes. Adds the poignancy to the story. And it reminds the viewer, like, not all these folks are going to be here at the end. Right. And I think that that's part of what the D-Day sequence at the beginning of the film does. It establishes the parameters of, of what can and will happen. And, you know, when that's how you open the film. Anything can happen after that. This is true. You know, it, it, it establishes a level of violence and a level of threat that you're just kind of on edge because you you know nobody's really safe. Mm-hmm. You know, in the back of your mind, you think, okay, Tom Hanks, he's probably pretty safe, at least maybe until the very end of the film. They're not going to kill Tom Hanks at the 45-minute mark. But even then, you know, you still know that everybody is vulnerable and anybody can be killed at any moment. Keep in mind that I think the gravestone reveals this only takes place over, I want to say, is it June 6th through June 13th? I think it's seven days. Yeah, it's it's like a week. So it's it's not like, okay, they survived, they survived D-Day, but like they're in the clear. No, they they mostly all get picked off by the... It's a a very short period of time. So it's a relatively short window of time here. And again, most of them meet their maker, which is uh, all the more touching. I, I want to pivot here and, and talk about themes because I think this movie is chock full of them. Yeah, I, I don't think it's sermonizing or preaching to us, but there are definitely some messages to take away from Private Ryan. And what would you say they, the, the major ones are? Well, one of the things, that, and this is something we debated a whole bunch in my class when we talked about this film, was the, the nature of the mission. Because there's all this debate among the, the characters about why should we risk our lives to go find this guy who hasn't done anything. It's kind of at the heart of the right? story, yeah. He, his brothers got killed, but he hasn't done anything. And so, you know, at, at what point does this make sense? They keep saying this doesn't make any sense. Why are we expendable to save this one guy? But then, you know, you've seen the scene with the mother and you've seen the scene with the generals and you know what's weighing on them. And so to me, I think what I take away from the film is just the utter complexity of the nature of war that most forms of art trying to treat war, try to distill it down to something, whether it's anti-war, war is never good, it's always bad, or hurrah, hurrah, get go get the bad guys. But Saving Private Ryan is is in this messy middle 
of there are all of these decisions that have to be made and all of these different missions and all of these goals. And sometimes they conflict with each other. And sometimes they make sense for one person, but not for another. And that there is no simple through line. There is no you know, explanation for all of it. There's not a master narrative that's going to make it all make sense at one time. It's just sort of these moment by moment things. And so when critics who tend to not like Spielberg want to accuse him of rallying around the flag and simplifying everything. I point to, like you mentioned earlier, the opening and closing of the film, which is the American flag. But it's the American flag shot through in a way Mm -hmm. with the sun coming behind it that desaturates it, makes it almost kind of black and white. And it's not a great shot of patriotic fervor, but more one that makes you think. It makes you question. And I think that's what they're trying to get at. That flag looks battered. It looks tr- a little transparent. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's it's seen better days. Yes, absolutely. Even though it's ostensibly the flag at the at the cemetery that should be, you know, brand new and, you know, uh, all of that. But that's not the way he shoots it. It's a good point. Yeah, I definitely want to dovetail back and talk about fair criticisms of Spielberg, but also I think some unfair criticisms. If you ask me what major themes rise to the surface after Ryan, there's some certainly obvious ones. And any good f- war film... Should have as its central tenet, you know, war is hell. Yes, <laughs> we get that, absolutely. you know, because I, I almost can't even think of a war film that is pro-war. Although I guess there are some some films that maybe even unintentionally glorify mm-hmm. uh, some of the violence, and we won't waste time on it. But this film does not; it's not glorifying anything of, of the sort. So, to me, the major message beyond what you talked about, and which were absolutely valid morals and, and messages and themes is his two words, earn this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, Miller, when he when he whispers that to Ryan at the end, I mean, he, what is it saying? Well, it's about honoring the extreme and selfless sacrifices that others make to safeguard, to protect and preserve your life. And so I'm really touched at the end when Ryan asks his wife if he was a good man who lived a good life. And what do we hear her say? She, she says, yes, you know, she gives an affirmation of such and she assures him that he's done his best to keep Miller's promise. And again, I don't think it's maudlin. I don't think he's just being mushy for the sake of Spielberg's sentimentality. This is very necessary. I I love the book ending between the young and the old Ryan there. And then, of course, uh, this film explores morality and immorality up the wazoo because Saving Private Ryan, I mean, it's a treatise on ethical quandaries that one confronts in extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. We observe characters like Oppum and Miller and Rebin being forced to make quick life or death decisions about things like POWs, about Mm -hmm. things like fighting back when your pacifist tendencies predominate, things like defying authority, overcoming fear and anxiety in order to save your skin and and maybe have your buddies back. So the viewer, Jim, is continually challenged throughout the movie through different scenarios that ask questions of them. What are some of these questions? I think obvious ones are like, would you kill the German POW if you were in that spot? Would you take the easier route around the bunker in in opposition to Captain Miller's orders? Would you think less of Ryan because of the deaths and sacrifices the company had to endure to find and rescue him? So I think Miller's discourse with Horvath, if you recall, is especially revealing. You see, when... When you end up killing one of your men, you see, you tell yourself it happened so you could save the lives of two or three or ten others, you know, maybe a hundred others. Do you know how many men I've lost under my command? 
How many? 94. But that means I've saved the lives of 10 times that many, doesn't it? Maybe even 20, right? 20 times as many. And that's how simple it is. That's how you... That's how you rationalize making the choice between the mission and the men. Except this time the mission is man. This Ryan better be worth it. He'd better go home, cure some disease, or invent a longer-lasting light bulb or something. I love that quote, and it really kind of encapsulates what we were talking about here a moment ago. A couple more themes that uh, certainly resonate for me, Jim. Tell me what you think. But grace under pressure is a huge one because, you know, personal damage that war causes, it's exemplified in his shaky hand, Miller's Mm -hmm. kind of shaky hand. Time and again, this character embodies the surprising intelligence, bravery, composure, honor of a relatively simple everyman who's asked to demonstrate leadership under extreme duress. But his unsteady hand, which we're reminded of throughout the story, it suggests what? That the pressure he's under to perform and to keep his men alive is, is very real. It, it also reminds his men who see the shaky hand mm-hmm. that Miller is a flawed and vulnerable human being. He's, he's absolutely fallible, right? Yep. Uh, Miller's wobbly hand, it further symbolizes how soldiers are negatively impacted, you know, forever changed by what they've experienced. Uh, But his soliloquy, Miller, it captures the essence of this point. Sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much, my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her. And how I'll ever be able to... to tell her about days like today. Uh, Ryan... I don't know anything about Ryan. I don't care. Man means nothing to me, it's just a name. But if, you know, if going to Ramel and finding him so he can go home, if that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well then, then that's my mission. It makes absolute sense what he's saying. And it's just the slow kind of degradation of humanity in people and, and like the peeling away of the sense of morality and just the sense of, of self and feeling whole, right? Yeah. Uh, physically, emotionally, psychologically, et cetera. Any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something that, you know, Spielberg has touched on in, in other films. Mm. Um, I think, you know, of the of the father and warhorse, you know, who fought in the Boer War and has since, you know, come home and become an alcoholic and a failure. And, you know, his wife defends him to his son by saying, you know, if you had been through the things he's been through and seen the things he's seen, you'd probably drink, too. And, and he refuses to talk about it. And so that that idea that, you know, war carries on, that it it you don't it doesn't get left on the battlefield. And especially the tragedy of it at that time, people didn't understand PTSD. They didn't have names for these things. Well, they called it shell shock, right? right. Then, but they didn't but... know how to treat they hadn't have good ways to treat it. They didn't have, you know, a lot of the things that we have today. And even today we struggle with that. Mm. We struggle with yeah, how we're to still, we're still that. learning about it. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think Spielberg is really trying to get at. You know, what you were talking about, you know, with the the line about earn it. I think in a way what Spielberg is asking us to do is for us to all see ourselves as Private Ryan, right? We're all the sort of undeserving beneficiaries 
of all of the sacrifice of all of these men and women who have died to preserve the nation, to preserve freedom, to all of that. And so that's sort of, I think what he puts to us is that we need to be earning this. Yeah, more than just on Veterans Day and Memorial Day, two right. days of the year. We really need to be thinking about like all the blood that was spilled and the sacrifices made over all the decades, the various wars, the various conflicts. Absolutely. One more theme that uh, I just had to mention, I just love some of the lines of dialogue in here are priceless, but it's commonly the small details in life that matter most, as I think another kind of tenant of Private Ryan, because the dialogue between Ryan and Miller near the end reveals something pretty interesting. It's frequently the minor memories and relatively trivial details along our journey in life, I would argue, that resonate the strongest, that propel us forward or that ascribe meaning to our existences. I'm pointing to, of course, when Miller refuses to share details with Ryan about his wife or her mm -hmm. rose bushes and how the company is so thoroughly intrigued, right, by their captain's enigmatic backstory, you know, having this pool going on. Uh, they want to know his hometown, his profession, everything else. So it's those small details that matter in a story like this, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that he says, no, no, that one's for me. Yep. Like, I'm, I'm just going to keep I'm going to keep that to me that um, that that's one of the ways that he manages. That's one of the ways that he survives through this. I think it's great storytelling, too, uh, narratively and screenwriting uh, wise, because uh, we don't know. We'll never know that story about him and his wife. And so it stirs the imagination in a very small way. It's not important in the main story, but it's important to our better understanding and appreciation of Miller. Right. I love it. All right, we're almost out of time here, but I have to ask you about greatest gifts. We do this every time around. So if you recall, uh, this is when I kind of sum things up, ask my guests to kind of tell me what they think the greatest gifts of the film are. So, Jim, this is the 25th birthday of Saving Private Ryan. And, of course, birthdays are a time for giving presents. Only it's the fans who continue to receive the gifts when a beloved film marks a milestone year. So what would you say? What do you believe is Saving Private Ryan's greatest gift to viewers? I think that what the film gifts to us is a better understanding as far as, as a film can present it of what war is like and what the men and women who go through it have, have experienced on our behalf and that we should not forget that, that that's something that we need to bear with us as much as we can uh, because that's the kind of thing that should never be forgotten. Yeah. That's well said and totally agree. To me, I think this film has two greatest gifts in particular. I think it reminds us, hopefully future generations as well, of the extreme sacrifices that were necessary, as we were talking about, among Americans of that era to preserve liberty, to defeat tyranny. Uh, optimistically, maybe the movie suggests that this kind of shared sacrifice is possible in future generations. I'd like to think it's, you know, there's maybe some optimism there. Mm -hmm. If we take the time to learn the lessons of history, if we take the time to properly honor the memories of the fallen. So Saving Private Ryan, it bombards us with visually devastating, uh, acoustically overwhelming stimuli, ethically troubling hypotheticals that illustrate how extraordinarily impactful the Second World War was to those who fought it and to those who survived it. You know, this is a work using combat as a canvas, if you will. Mm -hmm. it, may not, it may not be as poetic or as symbolic as something like The Thin Red Line. Uh, it may not be as, oh, uh, mythically inspired as Apocalypse Now. It might not be as anti-war in its DNA as something like Paths of Glory or All Quiet on the Western Front. For that matter, it's not as haunting maybe as, as The Deer Hunter or as timelessly culturally transcendent as something like Seven Samurai. 
But strictly as a World War II flick, it's the best of its breed. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. And then last point, I just want to, I said I'd dovetail back about Spielberg. I am an unabashed Spielberg apologist. I'm sorry, <laughs> folks, but he's not everybody's cup of tea, and I get that. But there's a reason why I continue to feature him uh, on this podcast. I think he makes masterpieces, and I think that uh, a lot of them are underappreciated. And this film's unwavering ability to thoroughly stir the soul is is another greatest gift because perhaps the best quality of a good film, Jim, is you know its capacity to effectively evoke an emotional response. Mm-hmm. And to me, no one does that better than Spielberg. No one. Yeah. Uh, you can call him emotionally manipulative. That's fair. You can label him unashamedly sentimental. I guess that's on point. But I believe that Spielberg earns the emotional reactions he arouses in us, honestly, by getting us thoroughly invested in his his characters, in his sticky situations of the characters. It also helps that he chooses a setting and a context here that's emotionally unimpeachable, World War II. It's pretty hard to criticize World War II and our involvement in it, right? right? So this is a war that can instantly conjure up sentiments of patriotism and pride among families of veterans and those who lost their lives in the conflict. So the viewers watching this, you know, a good majority of them or a good number, uh, you know, had some investment in this war. They had family members that fought in it, memories of it. You know, I said last year, Jim, that this director's magnum opus, E.T., again, it's my own personal favorite of his, it never fails to poignantly overwhelm me, overpower me, moisten my eyes, if you will. <laughs> and again, it's equally true of Saving Private Ryan. This is a three-hanky movie for me and many others, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I mean, I get choked up every single time I watch it. No, it's it, it's it's a very emotionally stirring film, and it's... I think to kind of add on to that, I think the other real evidence of a great film is one that you can't stop thinking about. Mm-hmm. It's like there's so many good movies that I enjoy and I walk out and the next day they're just kind of gone. I'm I'm not still thinking about disposable. It. What Saving Private Ryan presents visually and orally, the the experience it gives you, but also to the questions that it confronts you with. They don't the the, the film ultimately doesn't really give you clear answers on um it's a very philosophical film in that regard is it it forces you as you're walking out to be continually debating was that the right thing to do was that mission worth it was you know how do i fit into this uh, equation completely and i think that's always the mark of a really great film and this is a film that i've never been able to stop thinking about and i've never come to definitive conclusions on how i feel about different elements of it and i think that's the real mark of a great film you're so right. You echo a lot of the same kind of sentiments and feelings I have. So same page here, Jim. All right. So are there any current or forthcoming projects, maybe books, events, appearances that our audience would maybe like to know about? Well, right now I am finishing up uh, a book on uh, John Schlesinger's 1969 Oscar winner Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, we featured that back on, uh, oh goodness, I think it was our first season of Cineversary, was so it? look that up, folks. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it'll be coming out uh, next summer as part of the BFI, British Film Institute's Film Classics series. Nice. Very, very good. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Uh, anything else on the horizon? Or are you look gearing up for another uh, semester of Spielberg uh, works, perhaps? Yeah, I'll be. I just, I actually, I just taught uh, the Spielberg class last spring, so it'll probably be another year or two before I teach it again. But it's on, it's on the regular rotation. I just, I, I love teaching that class, and I find that 
students really enjoy it and learn a lot from it. And a lot of them haven't seen a lot of the films I'd expected that they would. Yeah. Have. So it's, it, it's great getting to expose eyes and minds to, to Spielberg films. Sure. I'm curious, do you mix it up every t- time you uh, approach it fresh with a new class? Do you add a new, more recent Spielberg work that you hadn't spotlighted before, for example? Yeah. The, yeah. The, the last couple of films I've, I've sort of, you know, the, the earlier body of work I, the, the, does not, does not change at all. But once we get past really kind of saving private Ryan, you know, it's like, I mix it up sometimes war horse, sometimes Lincoln, I've been mm. thinking about putting in uh, Bridge of Spies, Ready Player okay. One. You know, so yeah, it's it, it's always in, in flux. Too many films, not enough weeks. Exactly. I have a strong bet that you'll be getting the Fablemans in there sooner or later. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Just my hunch, right? <laughs> Pretty good work. All right. And where can Cineversary listeners go to connect with you online or through social media? Did you want to give a shout out to uh, maybe a Twitter handle or or otherwise? Yes, I'm. Uh, all of my film reviews are at uh, QNetwork.com. Um, and I am also on Facebook under James Kendrick. Awesome. Jim, this was a pleasure once again. Uh, it's always a treat to talk to you, sir. Boy, this is becoming a regular annual occurrence. Maybe we'll have to think about, boy, I'm trying to put my thinking cap on. Uh, what's going to be celebrating a milestone Spielberg anniversary next year? I don't know. Maybe we, don't we know. might have to skip a year because uh, I know Jaws is coming up in two years. So who knows? Maybe I'll be knocking on your door closer to that one. I'd be happy to talk about it. <laughs> Always fun to talk about <laughs> Jaws. Thanks again for your time and your expertise, Jim. It's always appreciated. Yes, thank you for having me. Have a wonderful summer. You too. We are so fortunate to have a friend of the program as faithful as Mr. James Kendrick. While we can't feature a Spielberg joint every summer, I am sure we'll be having Jim back before long. In the meantime, hats off to you, sir, and keep the Spielberg faith. Time now for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a website, book, film, TV program, event, or other worthy item of interest to movie lovers just like you and me. For July, my shout-out is simply a big thank you to the triumvirate film force that is Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, and Paul Thomas Anderson, who rallied quickly in defense of the beleaguered Turner Classic Movies last month. So in case you didn't hear, parent company Warner Brothers Discovery dropped the axe on many key staffers at the TCM network in June, and that caused a panic that the classic movie cable station yeah, might soon be shuttered in an effort to you know, trim costs from Warner's heavily bleeding budget. It's never a good sign when TCM's general manager, its VPs of programming, content strategy, studio production, marketing, and other valued staffers are shown the door, right? So, you know, nixing your top brass in this context, it actually looks less like a house cleaning than, yeah, signal that Mother Bird is about to eat her young. Fortunately, the three aforementioned filmmakers who were seriously concerned about TCM's future, yeah, they banded together to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Warner CEO David Zaslav. Apparently, this outreach did some good because Zaslav decided to rehire Charles Tabish, the crucial content and curation exec who had been let go just a week before. He also ended up naming industry-respected veterans Mike DeLuca and Pam Abdi to steer the TCM ship, and he agreed to allow Scorsese, Spielberg, and Anderson to even curate content at the network. In a joint statement, the three directors said, We have already begun working on ideas with Mike and Pam, both true film enthusiasts who share a passion and reverence for classic cinema that is the hallmark of the TCM community. The trio added that they are, quote, gratified to know that the team is focused on preserving TCM's mission of celebrating our rich movie history 
while at the same time ensuring that future generations of filmmakers and film lovers have TCM as a valuable resource. The moral to the story here, folks, TCM is too valuable a cultural resource to be treated as a disposable line item on a budget sheet and be made to suffer for all the terrible recent executive decisions and bloated superhero movies of middling quality that were churned out by the studio that bombed at the box office. So, you know, we could be grateful that filmmaker heavyweights like Anderson, Spielberg, and Scorsese rallied around the classic film flag this time around. But here's the truth. TCM's long-term future is certainly not secured. We can do our part by continuing to watch and spread the good word about the cable channel, but also let the powers that be at Warner Brothers Discovery know that tinkering with the national treasure that is Turner Classic Movies, it's not acceptable. I encourage you to voice your passionate opinions as such to Warner Brothers Discovery, to your cable TV supplier, and across social media. Let's keep the heat on the fat cats and send the message that TCM is too important and beloved to kill. <sighs> Meantime, a big thank you to Stephen, Martin, and Paul Thomas for helping to keep Turner Classic Movies alive for now. Did you know that Cineversary has its own website? That's right, we actually now have a vanity URL that's easy to remember, which will take you to a freshly designed portal where you can quickly access the latest episode of your favorite podcast, as well as all of our previous installments. Now it's a lot easier to spread the good word about our show to your friends and family. You simply tell them to visit Cineversary.com. Pretty simple, right? That's Cineversary.com. We also have a custom email address just for you. Now, if you ever want to share feedback on our show or offer suggestions for future installments, or maybe you just have a question about Cineversary, send it to us at Cineversarypodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can really help our show grow by spreading the good word about the Cineversary show to your peeps. Even better, please leave a positive online review and rating, which significantly helps us to get discovered by new listeners. So if you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, some of these other services, simply search for the Cineversary page, look for a link that says something like ratings or reviews, click that link, and leave a review and or rating. While you're at it, take a moment to like us on Facebook. We also have a presence on Twitter. Our handle is at CineversaryPod, where you can easily tweet or follow us. And if you want to go an extra step in your support of our show and help keep us ad-free, please consider making a monetary donation to the Cineversary Podcast by visiting tinyurl.com slash donatecineversary. We really appreciate your support. Lastly, have you checked out my Cineverse Group website? Yeah, it's easy to get confused by these similar-sounding names. Cineversary, Cineverse, Tomato, Tomato. But Cineverse is actually the name of my private film discussion group I founded back in 2005 that continues to meet weekly on Zoom. Every week, the Cineverse group watches, researches, and discusses a different movie, and I create a summary write-up, call it a mini-essay if you will, on that movie that gets posted to the Cineverse group blog. So if you want to enjoy reading in-depth content that examines different discussion-worthy motion pictures, including classic Hollywood films, independent features, foreign masterworks, modern movies, and silent era standouts, then visit cineversegroup.com, simply spelled C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group.com. Fun fact, every posted article on cineversegroup.com includes a link to a recording of our group discussion of that particular film with me leading the conversation as moderator. So if you like what I'm doing on a Cineversary podcast, you might also want to give a listen to some of our Cineverse group recordings, which are podcasts of a different sort. 
Again, head over to cinebersgroup.com where you can check out some interesting text and audio content on a variety of films not necessarily celebrating a milestone anniversary. Okie dokie, what's on tap next time around? We will get off this intense drama highway and take a detour to Funnyland in August by celebrating a major anniversary of one of the all-time great comedies. Join us a month from now to honor the 90th birthday of the Marx Brothers immortal laugher, Duck Soup, directed by Leo McCary and originally released in 1933. Until then, this is your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies, because they're not getting older, they're getting Spielbergier. Thanks for giving us a listen. Thank you.